You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Scripture passage for today, which comes from Acts 27. It's a long passage, so follow along with your Bible's devices or on the screen. Acts 27. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Andromedium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbour was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbour of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along, running under the lee of a small island called Kauda. We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete, and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now, I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night, there stood before me an angel of the God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. 
And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. These are the true words of the living God. Thank you. Thanks, Divya. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you this morning and wonderful to be here again. If you are new, my name's Simon. I haven't preached for about four months, so uh, I felt like first congregation, I was trying to learn how to ride a bicycle again. <clears throat> um, but let's, let's pray and let's ask God to be with us this morning. Father, we just come before you and we ask that you by your spirit would be at work in our hearts. Father, you know every person here is in an entirely different place in life. But you are the personal God who knows every one of us personally and has prepared our hearts and wants to apply your truth and your word to us in unique ways. So we open our hearts to you and we ask you to come and do your, your work in us today. Amen. St. Augustine, living about 1600 years ago, famously said that sin has the result of making us curved in on ourselves. As human beings, we are made to uh, be curved out toward others, to, to know God, to love Him, and to love our neighbors, to love those around us. But sin curves us in on ourselves. We begin to look at ourselves and we see the entire world through our own lenses or through our own selves. Maybe you've been out in public and uh, you walk past a shop or something that has a, a large mirror on it and you immediately look in there to see how do you look. Or maybe uh, a photograph is taken of you with a whole group of friends and posted in a WhatsApp chat group and you zoom in quickly to see how did you look in that photo. We're so overly conscious of ourselves. And this sense of being aware of ourselves and focus on ourselves often uh, is exacerbated in times of stress or times of chaos. I was talking with a friend in the first congregation a few months ago who told me he was flying to Melbourne uh, in the window seat at night and his plane got struck by lightning and the plane shook so violently people were screaming and going mad. What is the most afraid that you've ever been before? And how did you react? Maybe you're in a place at the moment in your life where there's a lot of stress or pressure. Are you able to notice and serve and love those around you? Or has the whole world been reduced just to your own experience and survival? You know, on an airplane, uh, before you take off, they always tell you that what will happen in the event of an emergency, and they tell you that those little masks will drop, and they always tell you to put the mask on yourself before helping anyone else, even your children, which was always very weird to me as a parent whenever I was flying. But the reason that they tell you to do that is not because they are trying to communicate to you that you're the most important person in the world, and really you should only care about yourself, and who really cares about your kids? That's not the reason they give you those instructions. They tell you to do that because unless you have air yourself, you're not going to be able to be much help to anyone else for very long. And therefore, to be able to serve and love one another, you need to first be able to know that you will survive long enough to be able to actually care and provide proper help to others. In our passage today, we're going to see Paul in himself in a life-threatening situation. Maybe some of us today will identify with Paul, feeling like we are being tossed by the waves of life. But we're going to see how amazingly, in this situation, Paul finds himself turned outward in love toward others. 
in contrast to simply being curved in toward himself. And Paul's response here, we're going to see in the passage, really is quite amazing. But as much as Paul's response is beautiful and wonderful in the passage, I think that this passage is showing us something even deeper. There's a deeper message in the passage. And that deeper message that Luke wants us to receive through this passage is actually what empowers and enables Paul to live in such a sacrificial way. What is that main idea that we see in the passage? As we get to the end of the book of Acts, chapter 27, only one more chapter to go, we see that God is committed to fulfilling his purposes. God's promises are true, and that no matter what storms of life come our way, God is present in the midst of them, even in the midst of our adversity. And this is going to enable Paul to have a certain amount of peace and security himself, to be able to not simply endure this adversity, but actually be able to care and love those around him as well. And so as we get to the end of of this book of Acts, we see this theme of the, the fulfillment of the promises of God, this God who's promised that the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth. Now, if you're joining here today, maybe you're here for the first time or you've been to church before, but you have not been to RHC and you don't know where in the book of Acts we are, we are right at the very end. And Paul, who's been, uh, who was previously persecuting the church, violently opposed to the church, found himself confronted with the risen, resurrected Jesus. He was against Jesus. Maybe you're here this morning and you've lived your whole life against God or against Jesus. That was how the book of Acts began for Paul, opposed to Christians in the church. But Paul met the risen Christ while he was on his way to go and put Christians to death in Acts chapter 9. And Paul becomes the great proponent of the Christian gospel, traveling and preaching the good news of Jesus. And earlier on in the 20s of Acts, Paul has found himself uh, incarcerated. He's been arrested by the Jews, and he's appealed to Caesar And he is now heading to Rome under the care of a centurion to go and face trial in Rome. And what we've seen at the beginning of Acts is that God has promised that the gospel will spread out to the ends of the earth. And so part of what's happening is we're going to see God's faithfulness to Paul, but also God's fulfillment of his promises that the gospel will reach the ends of the earth. Now, this account is a highly detailed account. Divya, thank you for reading it so well. In fact, many people say this is so detailed, there's no way that this could have been made up. Luke has to have been on the ship itself, uh, especially given he was a doctor and not a sailor, because his his, uh, knowledge of nautical terms and the incredible details is really something like we hardly have any other example of in the same period in history. But it's a detailed account that shows us the advancement of God's purposes despite adversity. And our main takeaway today is going to be that God will fulfill his purposes, and this will enable us to serve him even in the midst of storms and chaos. Now, our sermon approach this morning is going to be a little bit different uh, to normal. I don't just have three points for us to look at. I'm going to walk through the story. Sorry, is this uh, making a noise, Winston? It is? No? You're not concentrating? You don't know? Okay. (laughs) This, uh, we're going to follow a slightly different uh, path this morning. I'm going to simply walk through the story. We're going to tell the story. We're going to see what what happens. We're going to make observations. And then we have two main takeaways that I want us to see uh, as we sum up at the end. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them. If you don't have your Bibles, no problem. Uh, A lot of the the key verses we'll look at will come up on the screen behind me. So in verse 1 to 8, we're going to see how the gospel is advancing, although there is adversity coming. So verse 1, it was decided that they should sail for Italy, and so the authorities delivered Paul and the other prisoners to a centurion uh, who was in charge. So this Roman centurion is in charge of these prisoners. He's got to bring them safely to Rome. In verse 2, they get on a ship, and they start to travel out at sea. In verse 3, they uh, come into a little uh, place called Sidon. And it tells us, interestingly, that Julius, who's the centurion, treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. It's a tiny detail, but it shows us that the gospel has reached Sidon. And that's significant because Sidon was on the very borders of the promised land that God promised his people back in Genesis. So Jewish readers would have said, wow, there's already believers there who know Paul and care for him. 
It's showing us that even as Paul travels, the gospel has spread far and wide. And we'll pick up this theme in the coming weeks. So we see that's what's happening there. In, uh, we see our map that they're, they're going to follow a route that really follows the land. And so they've begun in Caesarea. They've stopped in at Sidon. And now they're going to go around Cyprus and head toward Myra where they will change ships. And we get some of these details in verse 5 to 8. But in verse 7 and 8, our next slide, we see a hint that whilst, yes, the gospel is spreading and reaching these areas, there's trouble brewing because we see the word difficulty uh, emerges twice in the passage. So in verse 7, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty. And then in verse 8, coasting along it with difficulty. It's a little bit like in 10 minutes into a movie where the music changes and you realize something ominous is about to happen. Something bad's about to happen. And we get the sense that they're on the ship, but trouble is brewing. So in these first few verses, we see the gospel advancing and trouble brewing. Now in verse 9 to 12, we're going to see the first hint that there are two different approaches to adversity on the ship. We're going to see Paul, who's turned outward, concerned for other people, versus those who are in charge of the ship, who are interested in their own financial gain. So let's have a look in verse Nine. Since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them. A little bit of historical background here. Uh, there, were, there were periods of time where it was safe to sail and periods of time in the year where it was not safe to sail. And sailing season went up to about the 5th of September, but from the 5th of November, no one was allowed to sail. No ships were allowed to be on the ocean. It was deemed too dangerous. So you had this window between the 5th of September, sorry, 20th of September and the 5th of November where it was dangerous, you were advised not to sail, but you were technically allowed to do so. And Paul recognizes here it's getting dangerous because Luke tells us it was already after the fast. When you go and do your historical research, you realize the fast that year took place at a certain time which meant this happened after the 5th of October. They were getting very, very close to that no-sail zone and clearly are in danger. And Paul recognizes this. And Paul, who has traveled a lot, 2 Corinthians tells us he was shipwrecked three times. I don't know what that means. You don't want to get on a boat with Paul. Uh, but Paul shipwrecked three times. And Paul, I mean, Paul is a frequent flyer. Th- this guy knows ships. And he looks at this and he's like, guys, we should not be doing this. So he says to them, In verse 10, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Paul's trying to warn them. And I want us to consider something here, though. Why is Paul warning them this way? Acts chapter 23, which is four chapters earlier, in verse 11, Paul has God speaking to him, telling him that Paul will go to Rome and testify. God says to him, just as you have testified in Jerusalem, so you will testify in Rome. Now friends, Paul knew he was going to get to Rome. So I don't think Paul was afraid that he would not get there. Paul knew he was going to get there. Paul is concerned about others on the ship. Paul realizes there's, there's going to be danger and heartbreak here. And Paul is not just concerned about himself. He knows he'll get there, but he's worried for the sake of others. And in contrast to this, we see the centurion and the pilot and the owner of the ship who are not concerned clearly about the loss. They want, to, they want to go for it for their own financial gain. And let me explain why. If you have a look in verse 11, it says, the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Now that sounds strange. Why is the centurion listening to the owner and the pilot? Surely the owner gets to decide when his ship sails, right? No, no, no. Rome was in the habit at this time of commandeering ships when they needed to bring grain and supplies for their city from different parts of the world. And so what they would do is they would commandeer a ship, as they'd clearly done here. A centurion would be put in charge of the ship, and they would basically say, we're going to use the ship to bring uh, all of our supplies to Rome to supply the city. Verse 38, if you want to have a look in your Bibles, says that the, the boat was filled with wheat, So that kind of grain which they were bringing. Uh, And what would happen was Rome would pay the ship owners handsomely for for utilizing their their vessels. And 
Rome would also guarantee that if anything happened to the ship, while it was being used to transport Rome's goods to Rome, they would underwrite the cost of the ship. In other words, the risk for the ship owner is basically zero. I mean, he must make sure he himself won't personally die. But if something goes wrong, other people die, prisoners on board, it's not really the end of the world. And so the centurion doesn't listen to Paul, but is persuaded by the pilot and the owner who have a rich financial reward waiting them. And they say, never mind about the risk to everyone else, let's go for it. So that's what happens. And we see here two orientations toward life. One that's curved outward, Paul, concerned for others, even though he knows he himself will be safe and those others who are considering their own financial gain. Now, in verse 13 to 20, we see trouble emerging. Verse 14 says, a huge storm begins to break. And verse 15, 16, and 17, we see it is such a violent storm that these people are terrified for their lives. The ship was caught, it could not face the wind. They were driven along, they ran under the lee of a small island, and they had difficulty to, sh- to secure the ship's boat. They then feared that they would run aground. They were driven along and they were violently storm-tossed in verse 18. So much so that they began to jettison the cargo. And the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now, we see later on that they still kept a lot of the grain on board. Again, an indication they don't want to lose their cargo because they want to keep the money for this cargo. So they start showing, throwing the rest of the cargo, even the ship's tackle overboard, anything to try and keep them safe without losing their financial gain. But they clearly are terrified. And then in verse 20, it tells us, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. I mean, friends, think about how serious a storm that is. For many days, I think it's 14 days that they go along like this. No sun and no stars. And no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Friends, these people are in a crisis. They don't know where they are. They've been at sea for two weeks, hardly eaten, not seen the sun or the stars. All hope had given up. I wondered, I wonder what Paul must have thought at this time. I wonder how you made sense of this. What we do see, though, is suddenly the narrative changes in verse 21, and Paul begins to speak to those on board and provide hope to them. Look at what, Paul, look at what happens in verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, now there is food on the boat, we'll see that later on, it's probably because they were seasick, uh, not exactly sure why, Paul stood up among them and said, men... You should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Paul, I mean, that's not the highest of people skills. Some people say, you know, Paul wasn't married. I think this verse clearly shows Paul was not married. Um, I think if Paul had been married for anything more than three months, he would have known. You never, you, you never said to your spouse, you should have listened to me and done what I told you. I told you already, right? If you had just listened to me. But um, Paul, he was a very wise man, but uh, he was still making some, some mistakes, right? So Paul, Paul tells them, he should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury. Yet now, verse 22, I urge you to take heart. Paul starts to encourage them. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So Paul suddenly, in this terrible situation where everyone's given up all hope of being saved, Paul begins to speak heart speak courage, take heart. There'll be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Now, what is Paul saying? And how can Paul say this? He goes on, verse 23. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said to me, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Friends, what has happened is that God has appeared through an angel to Paul. Paul's met with God. And this has given Paul this massive sense of assurance. You could say Paul's got the oxygen mask, of, of, oxygen mask on of the assurance of God's presence and God's promises. And God's spoken to him and told him everything is going to be okay. Why? Because of the promise that God has made to him that he is called to stand before Caesar. 
Paul here, friends, is assured of God's purposes. And so what's so ironic is that Paul, the prisoner who's in chains, ends up becoming the leader, the free one, the one who can encourage all those free rulers, the centurion, the sailors, who are free and yet terrified. Now, how has Paul found himself in this situation where he has received this word from God? The passage shows us that Paul has gone to God in prayer. Why has Paul gone to God in prayer? Well, this is the God that he worships. He tells us in verse 22, this is the God to whom I belong and I worship. Paul knows that he belongs to God. Think about Paul. Think about what I mentioned earlier. Paul, this is the one who has persecuted Jesus, who has tried to put his disciples to death. And Jesus We heard last week Jacob, who was recounting Paul's conversion, as Paul does in Acts chapter 26, saying he was on the road to Damascus, and Jesus appeared to him. He said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I mean, that must have terrified him. And yet Jesus appears to say, come, I've chosen you. I'm calling you to myself. Friends, if God's grace can deliver and save the one who is putting his people to death. God's grace knows no bounds. Maybe you've wandered in here for the first time ever. God's grace knows no bounds. God's grace can meet you where you are at as well. And Paul knows now that he belongs to this God. And so he's gone to God in prayer. The God whom I belong to, whom I worship, Paul says. And there's a clue here that this angel hasn't just appeared out of nowhere to Paul, but has happened because Paul has been praying to God. If you have a look and you see in verse 24 what the angel says, uh, I know some of us may be a little bit distracted by the angels here because the ESV, the version we're reading, says, there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. Actually, in the original language, the emphasis is on God, and the order is the God whose angel came and spoke to me. So the emphasis really is on Paul meeting God here uh, and, and, and praying to God. But this angel says to Paul, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. That language makes it very clear. Paul has been requesting and praying for the lives of those on board the ship. Paul has been interceding. Paul's been on the ship saying, Lord, please spare these people, spare their lives. Remember, Paul knows he himself is going to get to Rome. He's, uh, I'm sure he had moments of doubt, but God's already spoken to him and said, you're going to get there. Paul now is interceding and praying for everyone else on board. And the angel comes and says, Paul, God has heard your prayers. God has granted your requests. He's granted you, Paul, the lives of everyone else on the ship. Not, Not a hell will perish. Everyone will make it there safely. Friends, this is a man, Paul, who in the midst of a a real personal crisis is curved outwards, loving, praying for others on board. And this is in contrast to the sailors. We see another indication in verse 30 to 32 that even after Paul has said this, that there are some sailors who think, man, this sounds crazy that we're all going to make it. And they, a couple of sailors in verse 30 to 32, try and take the little lifeboat and get down into the sea without anyone noticing and rowing themselves to land to just keep themselves safe. And amazingly, we see that Paul notices this. Paul's alert, sees them, and Paul realizes, man, if we don't even have the sailors on board, there's very little hope for everyone else on board. So he calls them out, calls them back and says, hey, unless you stay with us, we're not gonna make it. And they end up having to come back on board again. But again, we see this kind of curved in inclination of some of these sailors to try and preserve their own skin as opposed to Paul who's concerned for everyone. But I also want us to notice something here about Paul. I want us to notice how God's promises and God's certainty about his plans in fulfilling his promises don't simply make Paul passive. Sometimes we can think that the fact that God is sovereign The fact that God does as he pleases means there's not too much we can really do in life. There's not too much agency that we have, and therefore we just go along with life and end up living as passive um, kind of victims of what life is like. 
Friends, here we see Paul is completely opposite of that. Paul knows God rules. Paul knows God makes promises. God keeps his word. And yet Paul is the furthest thing from passive. Paul is speaking to the ship owners. I perceive there's going to be much danger. Paul is praying and interceding for those around him. Later on, Paul is noticing and alert when some sailors want to break away. This is a man who is actively engaged. And friends, we do love here to speak about a sovereign God who plans things, who purposes things, who works all things for the good of those who love him. This should not breed any kind of passivity in our lives but rather should, should energize us. So we have a God who is actively at work in the world and somehow God has chosen to work through our lives and our prayers to bring about his plans in this world. So we see here that Paul now has brought a massive sense of calm in the ship. And so in verse 33, we see that as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food saying, Today's the 14th day you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing, didn't need for two weeks. Therefore, I urge you, take some food. It'll give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. And then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. They discharged the rest of the cargo, knowing the ship's about to break up and they start to make it toward land. And there's one more slight uh, danger that Paul must face. Uh, as uh, it tells us that uh, the ship begins, to, the ship strikes a reef, it runs aground, it begins to break up. And verse 42 says, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners. Why is this? These soldiers were put in charge of the prisoners. And if you've read earlier on in Acts, when one of the prisoners uh, escapes, the king often uh, requires the head of the guards if he's their prisoner's escape. And so these soldiers are thinking, man, we can't let these people escape. It's probably better just to just end their lives now. And so again, Paul faces another kind of deadly threat. And what happens? The centurion wishing to save Paul kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land. And the rest on planks or in pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Friends, why is this story in Acts 27? I mean, we're getting right to the end of Acts and suddenly we have a long narrative detailed about a shipwreck and God bringing Paul through. As we, for our last 10 or so minutes today, I want to just draw out the two main ideas that we see here. The first, friends, the first main idea we see in this passage is that God's purposes are steadfast despite the storms of life. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, God has said that his disciples will be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And Paul and many face so many oppositions here, storms, selfish sailors who threaten to abandon them, those who want to kill the prisoners. We think how often Paul's life was in danger again and again. And yet God has made promises to him. God has spoken to him. And friends, we see here, God is committed to his promises to his people. God is committed to his word to Paul that he will bring him safely to Rome. Acts chapter 1 will be fulfilled. And God's promise that Paul will reach Rome will be fulfilled as well. But these, this fulfillment of God's promises do not just happen in a vacuum. They don't happen apart from adversity and difficulty. You know, in Acts chapter 14, verse 22... Uh, we have an account of Paul going and visiting some churches that he had been at before. And it tells us that Paul gathered the church and Paul said this to them. It said, Paul encouraged them saying that through many hardships, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, I remember the first time I read that verse when I was a teenager. I was like, I think there's an error in the texture. How can Paul encourage them that by many hardships we must enter the kingdom of God. That, that doesn't sound encouraging at all. Friends, if you're here and you think that believing in God will simply just make your life easy, problem-free, and your life has been smooth sailing, then to read a verse like that would be pretty destabilizing. But if you're in touch yourself with the adversity of life, with the difficulties of life, if you have suffered or you are suffering, 
If you've experienced pain, if you're like that person I heard about this week who was just bullied incessantly at school to the point of severe psychiatric distress, if you've experienced that kind of loss, if you've experienced grief, then friends, to hear that actually it's through many adversities and difficulties that God hasn't abandoned us, but God somehow mysteriously produces his work in us, draws us to himself, produces his character in us. Friends, this becomes encouraging. That your adversity, your hardship does not need to be wasted. Now friends, I am not saying here that God brings hardship into our lives for some other purpose and he's doing this in some way. There are mysteries about hardship and suffering and evil in this world that we do not understand. And the Bible does not give us simple answers about that. One day we will stand before God and we will all have many questions to ask him. But the scriptures tell us that what Satan intends for evil, what the devil does do in this world, God intends to purify us. God works for our good. Think about that dear sister who just shared her baptism testimony, and we got to hear snippets of it on the video today, who shared about being molested. Friends, I, I can't imagine the kind of grief and sorrow that someone must experience from those kinds of experiences. And yet, to listen to her speak, you can see that inside of her, God has done something in giving her a tenderness and even a forgiveness toward her perpetrator. A forgiveness that can only come, friends, from drawing near to God and wrestling with Him in the midst of such adversity and difficulty. Friends, as a pastor, I get to hear so much tragedy and, and sadness in this world. I shed many tears when I hear many of your stories. And there are many questions I want to ask our Lord, Lord when I get to heaven one day. And yet I'm amazed at how those who draw near to God find their, their hardships, helping them see God in a deeper way and trust Him and love Him and producing a beauty and a character and a tenderness and a gentleness that is remarkable. The kingdom truly gets formed in us through many hardships. And we've seen this in the book of Acts. Even when opposition and adversity has come in Acts chapter 8, when Saul's persecution is breaking out against the church, the church ends up getting scattered, and as a result, the gospel spreads even further. What about you this morning? What storms threaten to derail what do you think are God's purposes for your lives? And how do you respond to those? One of the difficult things about being a pastor is that when you see people go through adversity, you also sometimes see those who allow their adversity to harden their hearts. Not just toward God, but toward other people. I think all of us, this happens to some, some extent. There are parts of our hearts that have become hardened, some that have become softened. But friends, here we see Paul in the midst of great adversity, and we see the presence of God with him in the midst of it. A presence that's able to provide a stability and a peace, and enable Paul to begin to love his jailers, and serve them and comfort them in the midst of his distress. How does Paul do this? Friends, Jesus himself has told us, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. And friends, we know that, that Paul has met Jesus. Paul knows Jesus. And Paul knows that Jesus has suffered and been buffeted by far worse storms than storms on a sea in a ship. In fact, Paul knows that God's perfect will 
for sinners who are curved inward toward ourselves and away from God and have turned our backs on God and have become hardened toward Him. That God's will is that we, as sinners, get reconciled back to the soft heart of our tender God through much suffering. And not through our own suffering, but through God's own suffering. The Bible tells us that God Himself has come. Jesus has come to take on flesh and to enter into a suffering that none of us have ever experienced. Friends, Jesus, the Bible says, willingly chose to enter into the storm of the consequences of our own sin and our own guilt, taking the lightning strikes and the thunder of all the guilt we incur through our sin upon himself at the cross when he died for our sins. And through Jesus' suffering and adversity and the hardship that he faced, he he did that willingly so that we can be reconciled to God. We can have our sins forgiven. And we can know him as our father. Friends, God's perfect will was for our salvation to come through him suffering in our place upon the cross. This greatest storm. And when Jesus went through the cross... That storm was not a sign that God had abandoned him or had abandoned his purposes or the the world was going to ruin, but rather, mysteriously, amazingly, that God's purposes to demonstrate his love and kindness to you and I was being fulfilled through Jesus' adversity. And so just like the angel says to Paul in this passage, do not be afraid, Paul. So friends, today, no matter who we are, Jesus looks every one of us in the eyes and invites us to himself, saying, take heart, do not be afraid. I have overcome the world. Jesus comes to offer to us the oxygen mask of his life, the forgiveness of our sins, eternal life with him, and a God who will be with us through every storm in this world. Paul knows here, friends, because of Jesus, that he belongs to God. And he knows that the storm was not the end of God's promises, just as they weren't for Jesus. What does Paul do then? He goes to God in the midst of his storm. Friends, if you doubt God's goodness toward you, then in times of adversity, you will withdraw from God. You will think he's against you. And his promises are lies. But if you know that he's good, friends... Even adversity can draw you nearer to him. This week, I got an amazing text message from someone in our church. I I did their wedding a couple of years ago, and the last few years, around their anniversary, they text me with how they're doing and what God's been doing in their lives. And this is what they said this week. They explained how things were going in their marriage and how God's growing them, which is wonderful. And then they said this. Lastly, we've been experiencing a season of joy and grief as we conceived and then lost a child at week nine. We're still processing the journey, but we're generally doing okay. My husband, who is, she told who he is, but I'm not going to let you know who he is, he was usually the happy-go-lucky sort, is thankful that he's finally learned to lament. He feels that this will help him to relate to the Psalms better and more deeply understand the father's grief over the death of the son. For me, I'm deeply thankful that God has answered our biggest prayer for the child from the beginning when we knew we were conceived, that he or she would know Christ and be saved. My eternal comfort is that this child is now in the presence of Jesus, which to me is ultimately more important than the gift of having this child, as precious as it is. He, she has blessed us so much in its short life, and for that, we can experience deep joy and thankfulness. Friends, is there, is, is there suffering? Is there adversity? Are there tears? Is there grief? Of course there is. But at the same time, there's an awareness of the goodness of God, and thankfulness to God for His goodness and His purposes. And Paul says to us, friends, 
elsewhere that all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. All of God's promises. And God's presence too. Now some of us this morning may be like Paul. I want to encourage you this morning. You know, it's amazing to me. It's, it's a sign of God's tenderness and kindness that God speaks to Paul in Acts 23 and says to him, Paul, you're going to go, and, you're going to, go to Rome and just as you've testified in Jerusalem, you're going to testify there. That's pretty amazing. I mean, he has like God speaking to him, right? Now, if I was like managing the universe like God and Paul was now in a shipwreck and he was a bit afraid, I'd be like, Paul, look, four chapters ago, I just told you you're going to go to Rome. I mean, I like spoke to you directly. It's like direct revelation. And yet, what does God do to Paul again? He's in another storm and he speaks to him again. He basically repeats himself. Paul, I've told you, you're going to go and stand before Caesar in Rome. God is so patient. He's so reaffirming. And he comes again to assure, to speak, to press his truth into his hearts. Friends, maybe some of us this morning need to be reminded of what God's already said to us. I was amazed in my sabbatical reading through the Psalms how often in the Psalms the Exodus event is cited again and again in the Psalms. And God's promise that his steadfast love will never end. And that's rooted in concretely what he did in the Exodus. And God's people have to sing it, and they have to remember it. They have to remember this is part of their story. And friends, our Exodus for us, living later on in history, is the cross. It's the true and better Exodus. It's what we look back to. It's when we're in moments of doubt and, and denial and difficulty. We think God's forgotten me. He's abandoned me. He doesn't care. We look to Calvary. We look to the cross. And we say, God has loved me at the cross. God, is, God has worked through adversity and suffering and evil for my good. And I trust that he's bringing me through. We may need to be reminded of that this morning. And the final thing is God's people can be steadfast in carrying his name in the midst of the storms of life. We don't have much time for this this morning, but friends, it's amazing that in the ordinariness of life here, a shipwreck, not Paul on a missionary journey going to go preach, going to a synagogue, but just on his way in chains to Rome, suddenly there's a shipwreck and Paul's faith in God begins to shine. It just, it just oozes out of him. Paul is not uh, pressured by cultural pressures to privatize his faith. You know how we live in Singapore in 2020, 2023? You know, you can believe in God at church, maybe in CG, and maybe when you pray in your bedroom, but don't bring your faith into the workplace or anywhere else in life. No, Paul's not pressured by those kinds of pressures. Yeah, he says, I, the God that I worship, I was praying to him. He appeared to me. He, he spoke to me. And afterwards, when... Uh, the storm goes down. I mean, Paul has this like Thanksgiving meal for everyone, gives thanks to God and prays to him. I mean, for, for, for Paul, this is just reality. God is, God is who he is. Now, I want to encourage some of us to trust God in our daily lives and then to allow God's work in our lives to be seen by our colleagues and friends and to share about what God's doing in us and how he's encouraging us and speaking to us. Friends, if you belong to God because of Jesus and you know that his purposes are going to be fulfilled, this will then lead you and give you the freedom to be able in the midst of adversity and difficulty to be turned out toward others and to serve them. Jesus' steady serving of you in the midst of the storm of your and my sin enables you and I to love others like this too in the midst of our own storms. Jesus has been through far worse storms for us, friends, in love for us, to bring us safely through that. So we can go through any storm now, not being curved inward toward ourselves, but actually being curved out toward others to love them. Now we can do this because we know God's purposes are firm and fixed. Even through the storms and shipwrecks of Acts 27, the gospel is reaching to the ends of the age. And so God now invites you and I this afternoon to come to him to have him speak to us, his spirit to affirm us and strengthen us. So, I want to put up two questions for reflection. I'm going to give you 30 seconds to think about it, and then I'm going to pray for us. What purposes or promises of God this morning do you need to hold on to today? 
secondly, who is God calling you to notice and care for in the midst of your own circumstances, even if they are really tough? Why don't you take 30 seconds to prayerfully in your own heart think about those. I'll share one other thing briefly and then I'll pray for us. Finally, friends, maybe you're here this morning and you are not a Christian. I would urge you and encourage you this morning to take seriously the, the claims of the Christian Bible. In last Sunday's sermon in Acts 26, Paul stands before a governor, a ruler, and Paul, giving his defense of his own life, says to him, this ruler of this region, he says, you know that these events, the resurrection of Jesus, did not happen in a corner. You know these things have happened in your kingdom. Friends, this morning I would encourage you to turn to God, not because of the love and the grace that, not only because of the love and the grace that he wants to give you, but because historically the, the, the facts of the Christian faith are historically verifiable. The Christian faith is rooted in, in fact that Jesus lived and died and rose again. And what that means for us, friends, is the most incredible joy and peace with God and comfort from knowing Him. And I want to invite you to that God today. If that's you, I'd love for you to come and speak to someone after the service or maybe someone that you came with. But let me pray for us before I hand over to Jacob. Father, I pray for us as a people that you would help us to know deep down in our beings that we belong to you because of your love for us. And that this knowledge of your goodness, of your grace, of how you've purchased us for yourself, and how you're unfolding your purposes would help us to be steadfast through the storms of life. May we be anchored by your rock-solid promises. And then may we love and serve others as we go through life, even the difficult parts of life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.